I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Sometimes it begins with an unspeakably violent moment. Now we're at the worst point, and it's at the worst point you plan for peace. At other times, the price of war simply becomes too high. Too many lives taken or interrupted. The right to life, a peaceful life, finally trumping all other considerations. There is no total truth, and there is no perfect justice, and there is no perfect peace agreement. At yet other times, it's the realization that compromise is inevitable. Sometimes compromise and the pursuit of the lesser evil is better than the pursuit of maximalist goals that simply perpetuate the suffering of all communities. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Today's episode is about how to stop the killing. An idea that is both deeply compelling, especially now, and yet elusive. It's called inventing peace. And as with any invention, there's always a first step. The first step is often an idea. Okay, I'm David Harland. I'm the director of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, which is a private foundation which mediates in war and peace. I'm, you know, originally from New Zealand and a diplomat and and an academic now committed to a, a global peace mission. You know, our center, for example, uh, proposed to the UN Secretary General the, um, the idea of an agreement between Russia and Ukraine to export a huge quantity of grain that would, you know, bring down global grain and food prices for many of the world's hungriest people. And I think that often an idea is, is lacking in a peace process. And, you know, sometimes the, the idea comes from a look at the situation on, on the battlefield as, as the Russia-Ukraine grain deal came. But sometimes it dawns slowly, you know, that the white South African regime in, in South Africa originally engaged the African National Congress with the idea of dividing the black majority in order to be able to continue its rule. And as de Klerk continued his discussions with Mandela, he came to the conclusion that actually making an agreement now made more sense than fighting it out. So I think, in my view, peace begins generally with an idea. Either the idea comes from the realm of reason or it 
comes from the realm of bloody experience and grows slowly. Did you say bloody experience? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there is very uh, little evidence of, of peace processes that, you know, start from pure reason, as it were. I think it's when cost of war becomes too heavy that the more rational elements of the parties to the conflict decide that a compromise is, is necessary. And inevitably, in the nature of compromise, is not achieving your total objectives. And that is hard. It's so difficult to imagine in some of these conflicts, both the ones that you've been involved in and others um, that have been brokered by other people, how to bring together two sides that are so um, embroiled in, in a conflict so intractable that it's hard to imagine them even being in the same room. So I'm wondering, again, as an idea, how do you get people beyond what appears to be an intractable conflict? Well, as a technical matter, there are standard technical approaches. So our center, and we're just one of many, facilitated the process that brought about, you know, the end of the Basque terrorist organization, ETA. And that normally starts with finding people close to one side, but not totally wedded to its position, with people close to the other side, but not totally wedded to its position, and being able to engage them and start a process, what's known in the business as the track two process. And then when they are ready, being able to bring it to the, the official actors when, when the time is right. So track two refers to this sort of second tier of, of negotiators. Exactly. When you have people who are close to one side, speaking to people who are close to the other side, and they figure that there might be a negotiated settlement, which is better than simply fighting it to an end. And from, you know, Northern Ireland to um, Spain to a lot of the uh, conflicts around the world, the track two actors have been the ones who have identified the ideas that can lead to the final settlement. Does a conflict need to reach a particular point of violence or insecurity uh, to, to get people talking? What's the motivation usually? On the one hand, yes. I, there is what I sometimes refer to as the oh shit moment, you know, the, the moment where one side, usually the dominant side, says, you know, it's not going to work. Chasing down the last few hundred IRA supporters or ETA supporters or Tigrayan independence supporters will inevitably create so many civilian casualties and so much violence that it'll make the problem worse. So there is certainly a, an issue of ripeness in some conflicts that, that one side reaches a, a position of dominance but it's unable to, you know, really lock in uh, those gains without some compromise. Guerrilla fighters, 
skirmish with advancing Colombian soldiers. My name is uh, Juan Manuel Santos. I'm from Colombia. I was a former president from 2010 to 2018. During those years, uh, I negotiated with the most powerful and oldest guerrilla movement in the Western Hemisphere, the FARC, which have been at war for more than 50 years. And uh, we fortunately made possible what many people thought was impossible. And for that, uh, I was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, which I received not in my name, but in the name of the victims, more than 9 million victims of this conflict in Colombia. Very soon, you're marking the seventh anniversary of, um, uh, of reaching that peace deal with FARC. I wonder if you could speak to wh what it was that actually prompted you to make the decision to go after peace. Was there a violent event? Was there a line drawn for you at some stage and you thought, I have to turn the page and go after peace, as you say? I had never lived in my country in peace. I have been seeing war for, during all my life. I had the opportunity of being in the Navy, but at the same time, I had the opportunity of being a journalist. Uh, different uh, experiences that led me to the conviction that it, it was totally irrational. Do you remember that moment? Probably when I, when I had this conversation with Mandela. So I went to Johannesburg, and uh, that morning, I turned on the South African television, and I saw the most surreal live program. We just heard on the door, the police were banging with their guns and they kicking the door. And we all just jumped out. We didn't know what to do because there was no one else there. It was only the three of us. For the first time, the victims and the perpetrators were meeting in life and the television was filming them. And some of them uh, hit each other, others embraced, others cried, others screamed. And I said, what the hell is happening? <laughs> and uh, that afternoon, I had a meeting with Nelson Mandela. He was president of South Africa. Supposed to be a, a meeting of uh, 20, 30 minutes. It lasted four hours. When I asked him, what is it that I saw this morning in South African television? He started explaining how important it was to heal the wounds of the war. When Mandela said, listen, you in Colombia, you must make peace if you want your country to take off. I think that moment I said, this is going to be uh, my port of destiny. I, I, in the Navy, I was taught how to sail. And when they taught me how to sail, they said, you always need to know where you want to go, to have a port of destiny. And uh, I understood that my port of destiny after my conversation with Mandela, was trying to seek peace for my country. So to have a port of destiny or destination seems a lot easier than finding the beginning. So how did you, how did you find the starting point to that destination? Where did you begin? I started studying what my predecessors had tried and why they failed. Because almost all my predecessors had tried in one way or another. And I started to study different peace processes around the world. 
what elements, what lessons could be applicable to our conflict. My predecessor had a courier, uh, somebody who, who had sent messages because he had tried to make peace with the FARC, and the FARC said, no, I won't make peace with you. And so I used that same courier. And I said, listen, I want to make peace. But I had been Minister of Defense, and they were very surprised. I had been elected because I was a war hero. And uh, they they were very surprised, and uh, they said, well, maybe this guy really means what he's trying to say. And so we started in a process of building trust. For example, I sent my brother, my older brother, I sent him as my personal envoy to one of the first secret meetings. Uh, they could have kidnapped him, they could have killed him, uh, but they interpreted that as a real gesture and a show of trust. And so you start, this is very important, build trust and build empathy. Put yourselves in the shoes of the other side. Understand their worries, understand their feelings, that helps tremendously to start a process. Going back to the, the mechanics of, of the, that beginning point, Juan Manuel Santos in Colombia told us that when he started the process, his first step was to send a courier. And later he sent his own brother to talk to members of the FARC group. Can you just speak to that, of, of the importance of those kinds of steps at the beginning? And brothers are good, sisters are uh, even better. Visiting imprisoned leaders of the opposition on little islands off the coast of your country, uh, as President de Klerk did, is good. But what is important, and, and where I think that Santos absolutely got it right, is the idea that if in the midst of war you can come with an, a bigger idea, an, an idea in which they don't have to be big losers, that we can move beyond this conflict, that's great. You know, we are at our center, we approach the president of Indonesia, one of the world's most populous countries during the, the civil war in the late 1990s, and we said, you know, what about a peace process with the Free Aceh movement, the, the main rebel movement. And, you know, the president said to us, actually, you know, nobody had ever suggested that. So, you know, I think it can come from many places. And I think, you know, Santos was fantastic with this idea of sending his brother to Havana. But the idea of showing good faith when you are in the thick of conflict, can be you know, massively important. Much of the main street was destroyed. The crowds took the full impact of the blast. In one moment, a bright Saturday afternoon became carnage and mayhem. I feel an anger that this would be done, but I feel mostly numb and sickened. And I think it's also very important that those who are involved in building peace dig deep and continue. My name is Mary Robinson. I'm the former president of Ireland and former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. But currently I'm chair of a group of former leaders called the Elders who were brought together by Nelson Mandela 
in 2007. I was lucky enough to be one of the founder elders. We work for peace and human rights and a sustainable world. And we've always wanted peace for both Israelis and Palestinians as peoples, you know, who have to live together as neighbors. And that's that's our motivation. I was very aware during uh, my time as president, which was 1990 to 1997, so a year before the Good Friday Agreement, as we were building forward and the IRA had ceasefires, etc., that women were coming out of the housing estates and meeting their counterparts, um, you know, Republican and um, loyalist uh, women. The men weren't meeting, but the women were. How is it that in such an intractable, bitter conflict that you're, you're able to actually bring people beyond it to even begin the first step to peace? As Nelson Mandela said, you make peace with your enemy, not with your friends. And when I think of the Irish peace process, the Northern Ireland process, uh, the United States, a bipartisan support was there in a very real way. The European Union supported in a very real way. Um, And, you know, we're talking a much simpler uh, problem. We thought it was complicated, but much less complicated than this one. And, you know, the, the, the effort was constant. It was supportive. It was friendly. I mean, I remember uh, I was president at the time when George Mitchell uh, came and he had lunch with my husband, Nick, and myself in our official residence. And he said, I'm going to organize an economic conference. This was in about 1993 or four, well before the Good Friday Agreement, so that the, the people of Northern Ireland will believe there is a future, that if they make peace, there is an economic future. That's important. It's important to give that hope. And there were people who who visited fairly constantly. You know, President Clinton came, others came. It it matters that that you have that constant kind of support for peace um, Mm -hmm. on the table, making and telling you there's a big peace dividend. You'll get the investment. That was important. That was very important, especially for uh, the loyalist side in Northern Ireland, the Protestant loyalist side, if you like, that there would be an economic uh, future, and it was also important for the Republican side. I, I think, you know, we we were very lucky, and we appreciate it. And you know, we had the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement this year, and there was a lot of real appreciation of the United States, of the European Union, and of course of those who helped to make peace on the ground. We often forget how the conflict in Ireland seemed so intractable and was so entrenched. Yes. Uh, And it seemed like it would never end. Were you surprised when an agreement was struck? Well, we did have good leadership of, you know, on both sides, um, if you like. And we had John Hume consistently and um, in many ways, boringly repeating his peace plan and putting it ahead of his party politics um, in a way that was quite extraordinary. And you had David Trimble, who followed on some other leaders who tried, but he, he was the one. And he got the Nobel Peace Prize together with John Hume because he was prepared to reach out and take a risk. And he took a risk. He, he paid for it politically, as did John Hume. Was there an event or a, a moment that you think finally revealed to people that they had no choice but to pursue political solution to a political problem? I certainly think that people were very tired of uh, the... Uh, killing, the kneecapping, the destruction of property, the fear, uh, all of that. 
Here on these faces, these broken bodies, hard evidence of the previous day's Serb onslaught on Srebrenica. The UN says nearly 60 people were killed, nearly 100 were injured. Are you able to draw from your experiences negotiations that you've been involved in that, that perhaps taught you the greatest or the most useful lessons about peacemaking? I started my life as a mediator in, in Bosnia during the war, and there were terrible negative examples. You know, so, for example, the, the people of uh, Srebrenica and their leaders agreed with UNHCR and, and the Serbs who had surrounded their, their city that the population could be evacuated to safer territory. Now, eventually, that was refused by the international community, and instead an appeal was made to Canada and, and to other countries to insert peacekeepers to try and protect the enclave. And in the end, you know, the, the people of that area were massacred, you know, thousands and thousands of them. I, I was sent by the United Nations to try to understand what had happened in Srebrenica when they weren't hearing from anybody. I arrived at this agricultural warehouse, maybe 10 meters by 20 meters. And um, I decided to poke my head in the door. It was just in, in a village called Kravica, just outside of Srebrenica. And when I poked my head in the door, I realized that all six faces of this, the internal faces of this warehouse, the four walls and the ceiling and the floor, were caked with human remains, that seven or eight hundred people had been forced into this uh, small concrete space. And then fire had been directed through all the windows and doors and their bodies had physically exploded. And, and by the time I arrived there some, some weeks later, you know, there were human remains still caked, you know, usually just little red or brown smudges, but sometimes hair or, or, or skull. And, you know, these were people who died because the rest of us said that you shouldn't compromise on your principles. But, you know, somehow the lesson it taught me is that the highest principle of all is the right to life, even when it trades off against other principles, such as ethnic cleansing and, and social justice. So for me, the, the horror of Bosnia and Herzegovina has led me on a, a lifelong journey in pursuit of the lesser evil.
David Harland, Director of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in Geneva. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Lee C. Camp here. If you've been enjoying this show, I think you might enjoy my podcast, No Small Endeavor, produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX. No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. We sit down with courageous, impassioned people like actor Martin Sheen or civil rights hero James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Living a good life is no small endeavor and we would love to help. In the heat of conflict, finding peace can be an unpopular idea, no less so in this moment, in one of the most intractable conflicts of our time between Israelis and Palestinians. But there is a well-trodden route to stopping the killing, a long history of bitter opponents finding peace and some way of ending the suffering. Former Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos went from directing the war against the rebel group FARC to peacemaking with them. There was never an illusion of finding a perfect peace, but perfection wasn't the goal. There is no total truth, and there is no perfect justice, and there is no perfect peace agreement. Because it boils down to where you draw the line between peace and justice. How much justice is a society willing to sacrifice in order to have peace. And no matter where you draw the line, you will always, and we're living that right now in Colombia, you always have people claiming for more justice on one side and people claiming for more peace on the other side. It's impossible to satisfy everybody. Former Irish president Mary Robinson, who helped clinch the Good Friday Agreement, had a very similar experience. No, there's no such thing as a perfect peace. We haven't got in Northern Ireland at the moment a functioning executive, which was part of the Good Friday Agreement, and we haven't had for some time, and we're working very hard to get it back. It was affected, unfortunately, by the decision of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. I, that's a bit of a digression from your from your question, I know, but it, it's, it's illustrating. It's very clear that you never achieve, and you shouldn't believe you will achieve everything you want. An agreement, you know, between you and I about whether we should speak at noon my time or at six your time uh, is a compromise. Neither of us is entirely happy. And the nature of agreement between people with different views is that nobody is entirely happy. There is a lot of evidence that the most functional societies in the world exist in a dynamic tension between different alternatives. You know, should we be a society that pursues equality uh, among all its members, or should we be a society that pursues growth of the whole and Everybody takes their, their part. There is no perfect answer to that question. 
All there is is the compromise that we arrive between us. The Serbs in Bosnia, where I, you know, had my formative youthful experiences, had an essentially exterminationist view of the the Muslim community in which they live. The Bosnian Muslim community had an essentially dominationist view of the whole of Bosnia and Herzegovina. They reached a compromise that facilitated by the United States of America. But that compromise in many ways is ugly and leaves nobody happy. But nobody has died since, and and people are able to move on. So I, I think the recognition that compromise and imperfect peace is the result of negotiation is the very realistic and and very adult conclusion of how contending human visions of the future are accommodated. It is um, stark to hear you say it, although it's so simple that you say no one has been killed since, and that brings us back to the idea of the right to life. So in a way, it that's the measure, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's not the only measure, but it's the first measure. You know, that in Bosnia, the failure of the Dayton Agreement is they couldn't get beyond first base. I mean, first base was that they they didn't continue killing each other. There are societies, you know, one thinks in particular of, you know, West Germany after the war, in which a much uh, richer understanding of what it means to move on from crime and suffering and, and horror can mean. And, and I think that in general, the tools of mediation and the tools of compromise are a better path towards finding uh, you know, a viable and, and better future. I'm, I'm happy for the people of Bosnia and Herzegovina that Richard Holbrook was able to help them arrive at the Dayton Peace Agreement. But there is much more that could have been uh, achieved. And, and I think, you know, the tragedy of the peace process is not that the right to life was not observed, but that we were not smart enough about how that can lead to a society in which we can all live together. So does it sometimes come down to a choice between justice or peace? Yeah, I mean, it's very controversial to say so. Uh, But in my view, it is, you know, that in many cases, you know, one thinks of China after the Cultural Revolution or, uh, or Spain after the Civil War, that the act of forgiveness or, you know, even more painful in a way, forgetting, can be a way of of moving on. And I think that different societies have different mechanisms. I think sweeping under the carpet, you know, as may have happened in, in Canada in some ways, can lead to the perpetuation of crimes and injustice. 
but in certain cases, as in the case of Spain and perhaps the case of France, can allow for the re-emergence of a decent society focused on better things. And, and I think, you know, one of the tragedies of the Dayton Peace Agreement, which you mentioned in Bosnia and Herzegovina, is that the constitutional arrangements catch people in the moment of their identities in 1995, you know, where everybody had to be a Muslim, a Serb, or a Croat. Whereas now there can be a much richer sense of, of identity. You know, some people first think of themselves as coming from this place or that place or liberal or conservative or maybe Jewish or maybe of a mixed marriage or maybe homosexual. Or, and, and I think, you know, we, we do run the risk sometimes that we over-categorize the identities that are in conflict, and in so doing, we limit the capacity of those societies for organic and positive growth, and, you know, the growth of a society in which, you know, either we can love one another, or at least we can, you know, tolerate one another. Do you think that there are conflicts that are beyond peacemaking efforts? Like, are there conflicts that are so intractable, so awful, that they simply will never be resolved? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Sometimes it's so awful that whatever the price, uh, one side is willing to continue to the end. And so, I, I, you know, the classic example is World War II, you know, the 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 Victoria the Allied uh, parties said that unconditional surrender was the only outcome they would accept. Uh, I think you know way over ninety percent of conflicts in the world are not like that, and I think even the most painful conflicts like Russia and Ukraine or Israel and Palestine are clearly not going to end like that. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2016 to Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos for his resolute efforts to bring the country's more than 50-year-long civil war to an end. This tribute is paid not least to the representatives of the countless victims of the civil war. I was told, don't, don't even try. Everybody has tried, has failed. Uh, you are a war hero because I was elected the first time as a war hero. And this is uh, an impossible peace. You will never reach an agreement. Well, I said, that's not true. You have to uh, find a way. And we found a way. It's not comparable because Hamas and, and FARC uh, are completely different, but the the overall attitude towards how can you make two parties that have been at war with, uh, with each other for more than 50 years, and yeah. there's so much hate and so much uh, uh, revenge, or they want revenge, uh, how so, so many victims. We have nine million victims of our conflict. How can you make them reconcile? Well, by making them, making them talk, by 
understanding each other's needs by treating each other as human beings. One very important aspect of the process in Colombia was that during the war, I was Minister of Defense, but I humanized the war. What do I mean by humanizing the war? I told my soldiers and my officers, please treat the enemies not as enemies, but as adversaries. That was a teaching from a general that had been commander of the Colombian Armed Forces who told me, I know that you in the end want to have peace with the FARC, so don't treat them as en as enemies but as adversaries. And I said, what is the difference? And he said, the difference is that enemies you eliminate, adversaries you beat because you're going to have to live with them for the rest of your life. And so treat them as human beings. They all have mothers, they all have brothers, they all have, many, many have kids. Treat them as human beings. And I started to tell my soldiers and my officers, do this. And I changed the, the doctrine and the rules of engagement. And uh, instead of eliminating uh, the wounded uh, guerrillas, uh, I, said, I told them, take them to hospitals. And that had a very, very important repercussion in the attitude of the FARC towards us. They're not... Uh, They're not the devil that we thought. They are humans. That's a, an, an interesting approach. I wonder if you could speak to how difficult it is to make that mental shift from seeing someone, to, from, from being an enemy to an adversary, especially if that person has blood on their hands. Well, it's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, but you have to persevere and you have to... Uh, be patient. Uh, patience is very necessary. And be persuasive. I had the opportunity of making war and making peace. You have a leadership making war is rather easy. In war, you rally the forces around you and uh, you go after your adversary um, and uh, you have a sort of vertical type of leadership. Uh, You give orders, you have a strategy. Making peace is a completely different. It's a horizontal type of leadership. Uh, instead of giving orders, you have to persuade. And to persuade a mother whose daughter was raped and killed to accept a special legal treatment of the perpetrators is very difficult. But I learned. Uh, And this was, for me, a surprise, that the victims are much more generous than what I thought. I talked to many of them, and they told me their stories, the most awful dramas. And at the end, they said, but, but President, persevere, continue, go for the peace. And I said, why are you so generous if you just told me that These people yeah. committed the worst crimes against you and your family. And many of them said to me, because we don't want others to suffer what we suffered. And for me, that was a lesson in life. It was a surprise for me, but the victims, because they are victims, they become more 
interested in some kind of solution in order to avoid other people suffering as they suffered. That's what I learned during the process. And uh, for example, when I went uh, to Kiev to uh, talk to uh, Zelensky, I told him, uh, visualize and recognize the victims since the beginning. That will give you a lot of legitimacy, help the victims since the beginning, because usually in wars, the victims are not taken into consideration. The Colombian peace process was the first one who put the rights of the victims, the rights to justice, to reparations, to the truth and non-repetition in the center of the negotiation. That had never happened. But that gave the Colombian peace process tremendous legitimacy. And I would say to the, the victims, if you, as a victim, push for a solution, that would give that solution much more strength and much more legitimacy. He referred to victims in Colombia's civil war and how they kind of became his allies in his, in his efforts for peace. He talks about their motivation being ultimately that he, they too wanted an end to conflict and they didn't want to see other people go through what they went through. Can, can you speak to the importance of having victims uh, on the side of peace, as difficult as that might be? Yeah, no, no, I think it's very, very important in civil war contexts. It's very important that the state and its allies and the insurgents and their allies understand that the pain isn't worth it. You know, in, in our center, we were able to announce and, and host the end of the Basque terrorist movement, ETA. And it's not that any of the supporters of that movement thought that the struggle was wrong. It's that people on all sides, and I think particularly women in third parties, thought it wasn't worth it. That, it, that in a reasonably honorable compromise was better than a fight on principle to the, to the last. And, and I think, you know, that's the, uh, that's the genius of Juan Manuel uh, Santos, by the way. You know, I think, you know, he saw that they had a military option, but it wasn't worth it. The cost, the human cost, the social cost of completely destroying the FARC uh, was so great that the the better choice for the future of the nation as a whole was compromise. So you've made it clear that you, you're talking about the civil conflict situation when we're talking about having victims on side. What about in other kinds of situations? Yeah, I, I think um, the people whose voices should most be heard are the the people of the communities themselves. We have lived through a generation of proxy conflicts and uh, during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And those were savage and ugly conflicts in which many 
hundreds of thousands and millions of people died for for nothing. And and I think there is a risk that we are slipping into that again. Uh, the the war in Sudan between uh, General Burhan and General Hameti, which is one of the worst armed conflicts in the world, is a war about nothing. And and it's a struggle for power. You know, this is the Game of Thrones. And and the tragedy of the world that is emerging, the the post-Pax Americana, the post-post-Cold War world, is that these regional proxy wars are emerging in which there is colossal suffering and colossal death for absolutely nothing. That can't be easy for someone whose métier it is to make peace to watch. No, no, no. I I, I think um, in many ways the work of peace was exhilarating between you know, the late Cold War era, the, the mid-1980s of the peace agreements in Central America, then in Cambodia, and so on, and, you know, in which Canada played a major part for about 20 years. I, I think, you know, in the very broad sweep of history, you know, what's astonishing is that the post-Cold War era in which peace agreements were possible and which mediation was such an, an exciting, you know, morally fulfilling world to be engaged in was so short. Uh, and I think there were major errors made on behalf of, you know, the United States and, and Western countries, uh, which made it even shorter than it had to be. But I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there was you know, just an incredibly exciting period of 20 or 30 years in, in which the work of peace and peacemaking could save thousands and millions of lives. And, and that era has passed. And what we are working with is a much more difficult environment. Two months since Hamas launched terror attacks on Israel. More than 1,200 people were killed during those attacks and around 240 people taken hostage. In Gaza, more than 15,000 have been killed in the Israeli response. It it has been horrific, as as you say, and it's been weeks of it. I, I wonder when you look at what's what people have gone through on both sides, whether you could imagine the victims on both sides being willing or able to engage as allies of, of, of a peace endeavor. Yeah, I have to say I come from New Zealand, you know, a relatively peaceful society, so I have relatively little standing to speak. But among my Israeli and Palestinian friends, there is a sense that this one is different, that, that the two communities have just proven to each other that they have an almost unlimited capacity to inflict on the other you know, the most horrible uh, suffering and, and fear. And I think the, you know, the nightmare of what has happened since the 7th of October and 
and sense, you know, is the reductio ad absurdum of the tragic decision of the two communities to walk away in 2001 from the possibility of a political solution. And I, I think, you know, if there is any silver lining, and, you know, there's not much in this, you know, nightmare of the Israel-Palestine conflict, it's that it is a reminder that not having a political process is no solution at all. Uh, and that however ugly and, and whatever compromises uh, a political so- settlement would have involved, it would have been much better than, than this. I would say that if you center the idea of how much you feel you are a victim of a terrible situation that is intolerable, try to think of the sense of being a victim on the other side. Try and have some empathy for how the other side is thinking um, in families, how the families are talking to each other. Um, Maybe that can evoke a humanizing. We do need to humanize on both sides. And I I do respect and I understand how difficult it is um, listening to those um, Israeli uh, families who had had either, and in one case it was children as well, taken from them um, and other family members killed. I mean, that's unimaginable, really, you know, how that pain and that suffering. And then, you know, listening to the acute uh, crisis, um, uh, you know, the overwhelming crisis that Gaza is suffering at the moment in every sense. Um, and then uh, there's still uh, constant bombardment. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a, and, and, and you, you think of children and their mental health and everybody and their mental health in, in that situation, apart from uh, their physical uh, problems. I, I, I do think um, centering a sense of victimhood, both sides see themselves as victims. They need to see the victim in the other. Um, and that's not easy, but I think that's the only way forward. You have made a, a point, um, for obvious reasons, to, to keep a low profile and, and not to speak in detail about what it is that you do behind the scenes. But, but I must ask you, because we're talking to you, have you been called on to assist in this conflict? Yeah, I mean, we are a non-public organization. We're not secret. We have, we have a website, as you know, every last chicken farm in Sichuan province has a website. Um, But we operate neutral channels mm, between parties to conflict. I I think uh, diplomacy, as it existed for hundreds of years, was a vehicle to do that, to establish high-fidelity channels where you could arrive at compromises which suited both sides. For various reasons to do with the social media, to do with changes in social structure, that type of diplomacy, which served the world relatively well for a long time, is impossible. So there are private diplomacy actors at work. And those 
private diplomacy actors are working at at least three levels. First, the level of ensuring that hostages are freed and aid is flowing. The second is that there should be no regional escalation of the conflict. And the third is that the parties should have whatever support they need uh, if they choose to engage in a, in a um, settlement of their differences. It's great that the official actors are, are doing what they can, and clearly that's not sufficient. And it's important that there are a series of other actors who are helping them to fulfill the roles uh, that in times past would normally have been played by official diplomats. The Northern Ireland peace process, you know, reached its maturity at, at the moment of the Omaha bombing, you know, one of the most uh, horrific experiences. And, and my feeling is that it's, it's out of the crucible of suffering that the impulse towards compromise and peaceful coexistence will, will emerge. I, I can't say for sure that it will succeed. Uh, both Israel and Palestine have been moving uh, progressively towards more extreme positions. Both communities prior to 7th of October were dominated by majorities that were basically in favor of the so-called one-state solution, either a Jewish one-state without Arabs or, or a Palestinian one-state without Jews. And, and my view is that the only positive thing that can be taken from all of this is a return to the idea that sometimes compromise and the pursuit of the lesser evil is better than the pursuit of maximalist goals that simply perpetuate the suffering of all communities. On Ideas, you've been listening to Inventing Peace. This episode was produced by Carmen Merrifield from CBC's The National. Tune in tonight to watch Inventing Peace on The National with Adrian Arsenault at 9 p.m., 9.30 in Newfoundland, or anytime on YouTube. If you'd like to comment on anything you heard in this episode or any other, please visit our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. There you can also find our rich archive of podcasts, more than 300 episodes of ideas available for immediate listening. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.